Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How is it going on this second full week of 2021? <laughs> Are we doing any better? I, I don't think I can express how I'm doing it in words alone. I, I, think, I think I need some help. Just, just, just a sec. Oh. There once was a bug that lived in me. The name of the bug was COVID-19. It took my strength and filled my lungs. Oh boy, Corona does blow. Soon may the vaccine come to bring us out of isolation. What are we listening to? Oh my God, the internet giveth. <laughs> it does. Oh my goodness. I just so desperately want someone to do a sea shanty of Eyes to the Bies, like a TikTok sea shanty of Eyes to the Bies. <laughs> it's my favorite kind of like song of the genre. I don't know if you can count that of the genre, but it's the same root, you know, musical yeah. root. Sure. I want somebody do Eyes to the Bies. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I, I so that's that's from uh, TikTok, uh, something that's called Sea Shanty TikTok, uh, which Sandy introduced me to, um, knowing that <laughs> I would love it. Friend of the podcast, Amy Gordon introduced me to. So thank you, Amy, <laughs> for sending that along. It's really fun. If you're not on TikTok, it's not a big deal. You can just check out like hashtag uh, Sea Shanty Talk or Shanty Talk talk being T-O-K, and it's um, it's a really wonderful uh, uh, people just singing uh, together with one another, which uh, at month nine of uh, this very bizarre world we live in, it feels like a little bit of warmth, actually. These harmonies are really great. The harmonies are actually incredible, and as two former choir kids <laughs> did some <laughs> of this type of harmonization, Nora and I were quite giddy about it. I love the Drunken Sailor. <laughs> <laughs> renditions <laughs> sea, sea shanties it's it's the greatest thing i love it yeah yeah and the last thing i'll say about that is there is one where there are seven bases harmonizing and it's like oh my goodness it's awesome it's really good but i mean aside from that yeah i've had a i've had an okay week i've had an all right week no covid yet so that's how i'm living my day every day at a time how, how are you doing I'm doing all right. It is very hot out here in Los Angeles. It is uh, one of the hottest weeks that this time in January has ever been, uh, which is unsurprising given the state of the world. <laughs> so that has mm. me a little bit uh, concerned. Uh, my cousin, who I spoke about before, who has who had contracted COVID, got better, but then he got worse. Uh so it looks like he's going to be one of those folks who might have some long-term impacts, but he's no longer in the hospital. Mm. So that's good news, but it still, you know, makes me feel pretty shitty about COVID generally, obviously. Before we get into the episode, which is not about sea shanties, although, I mean, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm so tempted to do <laughs> We could do Eyes so the Buys. We could do Eyes the Buys. Oh, my God. We could do that. I mean, one of, one of the funny things about uh, being like, a, like in a Canadian children's choir uh, in the time that Sandy and I both were, and of course, we were not in the same city, uh, but the music really did center around Eastern Canada. And so we know quite a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But we're yeah. not talking about shanty talk. We could, <laughs> but we're not going to. But before we get to the topics, um, I'm going to thank a couple of folks. So thanks again uh, to everybody that supports the podcast. I mean, we hit 500,000 downloads this past week. That is half a million. <laughs> 
no. for you math heads out there, that's half a billion. <laughs> oh my god. It's um it's really cool. And and every time someone's in touch with us saying, uh, oh, you said something on the podcast that made me think about something in a different way, or that um, you know, got this group, the group that I'm involved in organizing in a certain way. I mean, it really is amazing to hear. So thank you for those stories. And mm-hmm. um, and of course, that's a way to support the podcast is to take some of the ideas and, and things that we discuss here and apply them to wherever you're at in your life. But the other way, of course, to support the podcast is to send us some bucks. <laughs> and so this week, I want to thank Margot Kyle, True Canadian Crime Podcast. Uh, hey, thanks for the support. And um, I heard a shout yeah. out. I heard a shout out to the True Canadian crime podcast from Archie Mann in his podcast in Canada Land Commons about uh, Fuck the Police, which Sandy, you uh, got me into, actually. I, it's such a good podcast, isn't it? It's really, really incredible. It's it, so good. Yeah. If you if you folks have not been listening to the Canada Land Commons, The Police by Archie Mann, you really, really should. The latest episode is about um, the uh, police... Um, using infiltrators during the G20 and the type, the type of uh, activities that they did, um, the way they tried to um, entrap and um, and you know just deceive all of these organizers during the G20, and it is it's quite the listen. It's re- every episode is really really good, really revealing. High key recommend. Totally, I'm gonna get back to the list. Thank you to Rachel Asha Brock. Molly, Rachel, Kate, Sarah, and Jamie. We really appreciate you all. We appreciate everybody that donates to the podcast and that hasn't changed their pledge in a while, so they haven't had their names read in a while. And we appreciate everybody. If you're listening to us, we appreciate you. Before we get into the big story, so the the big story, just just to give you a little taste, the story, we're going to be talking about racism in journalism, um, if some of you have been following that big CBC case. But before we get there, guess what else happened this week? Uh, it was discovered that uh, Jared and Ivanka forced the Secret Service, who have to follow them all the time, to shit in the neighbor's toilet. That, was- that is unfucking believable. <laughs> that did happen this week. Yeah, <laughs> the weeks are filled with too much. That is just too. You know, it's not unfucking believable. Actually, it's very believable. I read the story and I was like, yeah, makes sense. Tracks. Yeah. Well, especially because our head of state, um, when she comes to Canada, the queen cannot shit anywhere that someone else has shit. And so the Canadian government uses our money to build one time only use toilets. So a little bit of trivia of how not dissimilar the queen is from the Trumps. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, Don't know if I can say that I'm glad to know it, but I feel like it's information (laughs) I should be aware of. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. So Employment and Social Development Canada was offering this grant or is was I don't know is offering this grant uh, called uh, the supporting black Canadian communities initiative um, that uh, BLM applied for it's a capital grant uh, because you know we have this this space that we called wild seed and we were hoping to be able to uh, continue uh, doing some capital improvements in the space and uh, and we got a we got a decision back, which I heard a, a number of groups got a decision back. Can I can I read you the decision that we got? Yeah, I mean, I assume it's like short and like congratulations, we're gonna give you some money. No, it's definitely not. It says <laughs> <laughs> it says that um, the information provided did not meet the eligibility criteria for the grant. 
And it's because it was insufficient to clearly demonstrate that the organization is led and governed by people who self-identify as black. <laughs> what? Dude, <laughs> I don't no. know. Because the thing is, it's like self-identify. And then they're like, they're double checking that self-identify against something, but also for BLM. And it's like, <laughs> I know that a number of other organizations had this issue too. And I'm just like, yo, what was the problem? And then it, it then says, uh, uh, this is, this decision is final. And, you know, we were pretty confused by that. We were like, so we can't, we can't even like ask like what the issue is, like what's going on. So, mm. Don't know. And then the the following day, we got another email from Employment and Social Development Canada saying, we would like to correct the communication that we sent to your organization yesterday. Your organization was not successful, um, but it's it's not for the reason that we said before. This decision is final. Peace out. (laughs) So I don't know what's going on up there, but um, I don't know. Might not be black. According to the Canadian government, <laughs> I you'd think that they'd be a bit more like aware of the optics of having like blackface Trudeau as the leader and his ministries making decisions like this. Like I know they're out to lunch, but it's rare that you see how out to lunch they are. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Anyway, I, I had a good chuckle about that this week after being like, we really thought we were sh- shooing for that one, but oh well. <laughs> so, but anyway, the big story that we're going to talk about today, do you want to introduce it? Sure. Not sure if uh, all of our listeners have seen it, though I suspect many of you have, uh, but an arbitrator's decision came out this past week in uh, a, a grievance case between an employee at CBC Winnipeg and his management. And the, the the decision is quite long, you know, like a lot of legal decisions uh, are. And it found very much in favor of the employee uh, over the employer. And the story is really wild. Oh, my God. Amr Khan was a young journalist at CBC. Uh, he was hired as a lot of people are at the CBC, which is without many um, uh, security benefits, like their temps or their part-time or their full-time, but their term. And um, and so he'd been working there. And when Don Cherry went on uh, some sort of racist rant in November 2019, um, and I don't remember what Don said, but I I, I also uh, weighed in. It was about poppies, the people who don't wear the poppies. Right, right. He's like, these people who come here and refuse to wear our puppies and speak our language. It was like, oh, you're really mis- meshing a bunch of issues together there, Don. Yeah, yeah. actually, now that, I, <laughs> okay. now that I think about it, he's been awfully quiet. Um, someone must have, uh, I don't know, put him to bed or something for a while. He's on Parlor. Yeah, maybe he's on Parlor. Maybe he left Twitter with the rest of right. the folks. So Amr um, t- tweeted something uh, pretty innocuous saying like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong because I don't have the tweet in front of me, but it was something to the effect of like maybe Cherry needs to be fired or put into pasture or whatever, right? Like not be working at the CBC anymore. And this set off uh, a series of events where management insisted that he deleted his tweet. Um, he did delete his tweet, stayed away from social media for a week. And then uh, a co-worker, a guy called Austin Grabish, uh, was using a laptop that Amr had been using. 
and he logged into accounts or opened up accounts that Amr hadn't shut when he was on the laptop. And he started pulling screen gabs, screen caps from uh, his private, um, private social media feeds and, and messaging apps like WhatsApp. And then shared them with their boss, like a giant fucking scabby guy might do. And so, um, I mean, I'm not sure his name is Austin Grabish. Is that right? I thought his name was like giant stink fucking rat. <laughs> Mr. Rat. Maybe. I'm not sure. The, the, Mr. Rat. Yeah. Mr. Rat, sir. Yeah. And so, you know, you should definitely take a look. There's the story has been widely reported, including by CBC um, in the and I also encourage folks to read the decision. You can find it pretty easily online on uh, on Can Lee, which is where a lot of all the legal decisions in Canada are posted. But effectively, what happened is that this guy, Austin, brings these screen caps to his boss. The boss and her boss uh, are like, this is unacceptable. And uh, Amr's fired. And. He grieves the, the the dismissal, and this all goes to the arbitrator. And so then you can see just how much the employee, the boss, and the boss's boss had conspired together to to try and get this guy out of the newsroom. Um, and CBC says it had nothing to do with the Don Cherry comments. It was actually about the content that they found in his private social media feeds. The arbitrator said that, you know, at worst, um, these private uh, correspondences that were never supposed to be public and certainly not found by a coworker literally searching the word tweet in his uh, private media feeds. Uh, this never should have really come to light. And, and his only transgression really uh, was that he went to Candleland to say that, um, that this had happened to him and he did it anonymously. And even there, the, 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 the arbitrator found that um, he was still likely doing that in good faith. He was still likely doing that because he believed in the CBC and he believed that the CBC should not be associating itself with someone who's as racist and shitty um, now I'm editorializing as uh, Don Cherry. And so so this comes out this past week and the reactions were very interesting. Um, and I think that that's probably what we'll focus on most um, today. But it's just like so shitty that 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 Omar had to go through this situation. And it's so, so shitty that these fucking scabby pieces of shit would even think that this is an okay thing to do uh, to push out a young racialized journalist um, from their newsroom. And it's it, it was a really interesting kind of pull back the curtain um, in a media organization. This is not a CBC problem. This is a problem across Canadian media. And it was it was quite shocking, I found. Yeah, I, I read the decision, um, uh, the arbitration decision with like, just so much interest because it really is something that we don't often get to see, you know, how it is that uh, journalists who are racialized, who are reporting on things that impact them in a particular way and are affected by colleagues who are reporting on things or acting in a particular way, um, how they are constrained in their workplaces. And so, you know, the, the story that is told in the decision shows a, uh, a responsible man who actually went to his employer and said, I feel shit about the way that Don Cherry is racist and I'm not the only one. Here are some of my white colleagues who have also said things, you know, I'm not the only one. I, this is, really disgusting behavior. And as someone who works for the CBC, I felt like I needed to say something about it. And I feel like I need some sort of support as someone who works here. 
And for them to then respond to him, and now the decision does not have the same opinion on me on this particular uh, piece, for them to respond to him wholly inadequately and say, one, take the tweets down that show that you're frustrated about, um, about Don Cherry. And two, if you wanted to pursue this sort of thing, you should pursue it journalistically. And three, maybe stay off Twitter uh, because it seems to be affecting your mental health. <laughs> it's just so, Wow! gosh, like I felt heart, like when I was reading it, I was just like, oh man, I, I feel like I know what this feels like, like th- this, this full on dismissal from someone you're working for. You're making this person look good through your own work. <laughs> okay. And they yeah. are telling you, you know, could you please stop? bringing this whole reality thing that I quite frankly, probably don't believe like this whole reality that you have this, this humanness, this life um, and the way that life is affecting you in a particular way that I can't understand. If you could kindly get that out of my face so that we could continue to be the CBC that we are, that would be wonderful. Instead of engaging and saying, how is this affecting you? Thinking perhaps if this is affecting you, how many other people are being affected in the workplace? Even even like the acknowledgement of, oh, other white folks have said this? Interesting. Perhaps we should at least, at the very least, um, respond in the same way to you as we are with everybody else who's saying things, which is by saying nothing. <laughs> you know, um, uh, None of that. And to, to have to had sit there and experience that and then think to them to himself, well, the only recourse I have, the only way that I might be able to pressure the CBC into being better is to make sure that an outlet that reports on the failings of Canadian media like Canada land would be interested in reporting on this. Yeah. And I think that the, the most important way to kind of have this discussion is to, to to zoom out from CBC Winnipeg and see like just how invisible this actually is outside of the newsroom to people. Right. So when we talk about how media, the Canadian media establishment is very white and protects white supremacy, it's sometimes hard to see exactly how like you can see it in the coverage, you can see it in who gets hired, you can see it in who's reporting and who's got what time slot or whatever. But you you can't see this kind of thing. You can't see the harassment, uh, the pressure that a lot of people at the CBC have to conform to um, to in this situation to what's called the the JSP, the Journalism Standards and Practices, and the JSP plays a really major role in this and. You know, other companies have something I'm, I assume similar to the JSP, but it polices people uh, to make sure that 100% of the time they are conducting themselves in a way that management believes is the correct way to conduct yourself. And so that means, obviously, you can't criticize someone like Don Cherry, even if he's being like completely outwardly racist. And, you know, he works for the corporation that you also work for. And and it's interesting because it's like, you know, this kind of thing requires like colleagues also policing this as well. Like the work that Austin Grabish did in this. I mean, number one, obviously, you, no one can trust their fucking story with this guy. Like if he's logging into people's social media. Uh, don't expect that any correspondence that you've ever had with him as a source is protected because holy Christ. 
But um, but that like white colleagues play a really important role in policing this as well um, to not just um, in, in this situation to literally be the one that blows open the, the, the problem, but to also question, uh, to gaslight, to hold up practices that are shitty. And, you know, at most of the time, people are just like, they're just like, fuck it, I can't handle this. This is too stressful. And, you know, and, and it's, it's especially acute among racialized journalists, but it's not just racialized journalists, other marginalized identities, anybody that doesn't fit in with what that normative conservative, small C conservative outlook of the CBC is. Um, unless you happen to land on a show with really great people and you're able to kind of do that kind of work without feeling like you're always looking over your shoulder. But I certainly have friends who feel like that in the corporation and you're just like, heartbroken because how do we have this national public broadcaster that's supposed to represent like Canada and the in the diversity of opinions of identities of social status of region of language all these things and 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 inside the corporation whiteness and in a and a very specific kind of whiteness is so aggressively policed that people are will get fired over just like saying something that I fucking imagine 70% of Canadians like already think and would say anyway. Yeah. I think that that, that point about uh, being policed by white colleagues is just so, so important. And again, if you get a chance to read the decision, you really should. It's really eye opening. but you know, Austin Grabish has been, or Grabish or however you pronounce rat. I'm not really sure the exact pronunciation of the word, but <laughs> You know, he's been on Twitter saying, uh, nope, that's not what happened. There are, there are factual inaccuracies in, in the arbitrator's decision. But I mean, what this guy did, um, um, like he, he took, he opened a laptop that contained, um, uh, that had uh, Amr Khan's uh, WhatsApp open on it. He took screenshots. He gave it to their boss, uh, Melanie Verhage. I don't know how to pronounce that word either. <laughs> Verhage, Verhage. Um, sorry, whatever. Uh, gave it to her. But beyond just giving them to her and beyond just the screenshotting, all of which, you know, is already too much. It's like, God, how are you doing this to your colleague? Someone that you're in a union with, for fuck's sake. Like, he altered the images, like some of those, um, the screenshots that they used to fire him with quote unquote just cause were came from um, messages that he had made before his employment even started at the CBC. So this was like a concerted effort. Like, I don't know who leaves, um, uh, you know, WhatsApp messages up on their laptop from like years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th apparently that's what we're supposed to believe is that there were mm -hmm. messages that spanned over a year uh, that um, Monsieur Rat was able to uh, just grab screenshots from and send over to his boss who who then decided that she needed to verify that and also went and took her own screenshot like the whole thing the in the, the way that he is automatically assumed to be suspicious and worthy of some sort of deep investigation, the violation of his privacy, all of this conspiring together, the messages between the boss and the rat um, that, uh, you know, show them ridiculing him 
And all of this to them is fine. And that is, you know, for those of us who have worked in workplaces before, uh, who are uh, black, indigenous or racialized in some other way, uh, and have seen, you know, who know, you can kind of point out in your workplace, these people who, you know, you have to be careful around. It's a pulling back of the curtain of all of that. It is very, just, it's so disgusting. It is so disgusting to know um, or to see the evidence of how, of things that we already know, things that some of us have experienced before of people uh, who are in our workplace who are just like, no, we don't want this person around or we're suspicious of this person doing this, that or the other, or they're making too much trouble because they've brought to us something to our attention that makes us uncomfortable. Let's figure out a way to get them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also last week, there was another story of, um, of, uh, institutional white supremacy. And this was in, inside Rabble, inside Rabble, Matt Demera, who had been the acting editor in chief of Rabble for 20 months. Uh, he, he, uh, he resigned, um, and wrote a letter explaining all of the ways in which he tried to, address systemic racism within rabble and just consistently bumped up against management. And, um, you know, I, I had, had had conversations with Matt. I should also say I, I've met Amr as well. Actually, the first time I met him, he was covering a press conference I was part of in Winnipeg with Linda Sarsour, who um, our event had just been canceled by the uh, school board in Winnipeg um, because of protests, which was, I mean, annoying. But, um, but Matt, I'd also been speaking with uh, a little bit um, with just how um, can you build a progressive media in this country? And so I knew that there was some some struggles within um, how um, changes were being kind of met. And I knew that because I, I also tried to change some stuff at Rabble and it's just impossible. Um, and so Matt writes this letter and, um, and of course, um, you know, the publisher denies it, says that we're getting an external review and all this kind of stuff. And and it was it's interesting to me because, you know, Rebels, like not the CBC, the scale is completely different. There's very few people um, that work for Rebel. Like it's it's a very small organization. And um, and part of the big issue, of course, is that because it's such a small organization that most of the writers are able to write for free, which obviously skews to white, um, higher income or, or more stable writers. And that's a really big problem. And that's a perennial problem with Rebel. Um, but it also points to um, just how pervasive uh, when a white person or a group of white people have power, it is so difficult to unlodge that power, um, If even if it's just because that's how it's always been done. You know, I think the stakes are higher within a newsroom like CBC Winnipeg because it calls into question a lot of their coverage and how they cover uh, local Indigenous activism. I know that Black Lives Matter had some very big concerns with um, with CBC and whether or not they would be invited to their events. But then you look at the at this, you know, t- small left wing uh, uh, or media organization that's in its 20th year now. And um, and it's so many of the same themes. Right. Someone trying to just do good journalism and try to make sure that that journalism reflects average people who you hope to attract to your uh, to your publication. And there's such a big divide between what management thinks is correct and what management who's been there for decades uh, thinks is correct and what um, a new staff person who's not white, who's not from the same um, long history that the that management has. Uh, and then what's the solution? Well, he has to quit. He has to leave because it's just not workable and then, and then nothing gets changed. And, 
you know, I'm, it's funny that so much of discussion about diversity in media is, um, is focused on representation, that I think that it's really important when these situations happen that you can see how representation is like, I think I've said this even on the podcast, it's like step two of like 50 steps, right? And so what's the, what's, what are the steps beyond representation um, to address a lot of these kind of inside rotten situations? And you see them across all institutions. Obviously, the university sector is like fucking even worse, right? Um, but mm-hmm. then how do we identify and fix these things when the power imbalance is so is so strong and that's where I'm I struggle uh certainly because Christ I mean media can just ignore you they can just not publish you and the second you get out of line um you might be out of luck and so there's just such a huge you you stand to lose so much if you stand up for yourself or stand up for an issue and because of that there's a lot of especially white journalists that just stay quiet because they protect their jobs more than they want to actually do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another issue this week um, that happened in the United States while this is all happening in Canada that's uh, related to all of this. Um, So some of you may have seen this thread started by Farai Chidea, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, a black journalist um, who uh, did some work for 538. And way back um, in, I believe, 2016, um, she uh, had written a story about white supremacy, about anti-blackness, um, and how that type of organizing was happening in America. And um, in, in her own words, she said uh, in a Twitter thread, So many times when I tried to cover racial resentment or white nationalism, my editors, and yes, I'll name Nate Silver, who works for 538 here, acted like they were protecting the truth from me, when instead they were preventing Americans from learning the truth. And, you know, it's just, it just goes to show, you know, I have had several arguments and frustrations with, um, you know, writing things for the CBC or being invited on to talk about something that I was later not invited uh, or uninvited from and then later reinvited later, <laughs> you know, very confusing. <laughs> and all of this reckoning that has been kind of happening in uh, Canadian media since last year. And it, what I think that it reveals, this type of thing reveals, is it's, it, I, it's almost analogous to um, how, you know, the people who, are, who, who have the most... Um, support for cops are like people who never interact with them. You know, it's like yeah. people who live in middle class or wealthy neighborhoods who've never had like a police patrol their neighborhood. The police are like a theoretical situation that they can like call maybe sometime if their lives were ever to be in danger. And perhaps and like the idea is that they would help them, but they have zero, zero experience with that. And their support just comes from this mythology that exists around the way the police work. I feel like that's the same thing um, with like racism and white supremacy and so on, you know, like here are all these journalists who are, you know, trying to get some power in, trying to do good coverage to cover to cover issues that the audience is interested in because guess what? Black people, indigenous people, people of color are part of the audience of rabble of CBC of all of these of all of these outlets, right? Like this is this is coverage that we need. We need to hear. 
And these gatekeepers, uh, the producers, the editors in chief and whomever who just are always just like, yeah, but that's, you know, that's fringe. That's not a real issue or <laughs> that's that exists only in some dark corner of the Internet and it's not going to come into real life because they have or it's activism or it's activism. Right. Like they have no real experience with how these things truly touch our lives. And so they're making decisions about the fact that this stuff is not news simply because they have zero idea of how it works that and a healthy dose of systemic and perhaps personal uh, feelings of about race and uh, racism. Like, fuck, it's just so fucking annoying. Like, I am a member of the audience who wants to read this stuff. I need to be able to be told about this stuff. I don't want to have to do what I always do, which is trying, di- trying to dig and dig and dig and dig for more information. That's ridiculous. I also don't want journalists, the people who I'm reading, to have to strategize constantly about the type of work that they're going to do and censor themselves to make sure that their bosses will find it palatable. That's absolutely unacceptable. And so, you know, Matt DeMira um, has announced that he is, uh, as a result of all of this experience at Rabble, is starting a new independent Canadian journalism uh, uh, outlet called The Resolve uh, that Yay. will hopefully launch in 2021 um, that will focus on Black, Indigenous, and uh, people of color's voices. So we'll see how that goes, you know, but you know, uh, Nora and I have said this before, like I just feel like so much of the solution to these barriers that we often face is just creating our own shit because so many of these institutions have shown us time and again that they are so resistant um, to engaging with us as people who are fully present in our faculties, creative and talented, and know what it is that we're talking about. It's so funny, too, because it it aids, and we've said this on the show before, but it aids in the construction of identity in this country where you imagine a part of Canada to be white, right? You don't imagine Regina to be a city that's racialized or or Calgary or whatever, fucking Sudbury, right? Like there's this construction of, 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 of what reality is that goes through the, the, the production of white supremacy and then it's fed back to the population that is not reflected in it going, what the fuck? Like this is not my experience. This is not what I see every day. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. a direct connection between that cognitive dissonance and the lack of trust that people have in the media and the rise in the far right, because without like the example that you mm-hmm. that you talked about from the United States is such a great, great example, because obviously, like, like if you're paying attention to the rise of the far right, if you're someone who is worried because you personally might be attacked as a result of, of a, a racist incident or you're worried for your community or your family. And so you're watching this through the lens of, of knowing that this is a big deal you're going to be able to cover it better. You're going to understand it, like how this fits into the Canadian puzzle that you're supposed to be kind of putting together every single night or day in the, in the journalism that you do. 
And so as we've gone like drifted further and further and further from journalism that just reflects average people's reality, and 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 that is the case like across the board, like Christ, like the current this week having James Coney on it, Comey, sorry. <laughs> The current having James Comey on it and like the big question that Galloway asks at the end is, how are you going to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? And Comey's like, I want to be remembered as a good dad and hopefully a good grandpa someday. And it's like, what the fuck am I listening to? Why am I listening to this? Who thought that this was news? This isn't news. And it's just like, the, get it out of your head. What news is management in all of these corporations? Global, global's just as fucking bad, right? CTV, the Toronto Star, right? This, like, what is news is you ask average people what they think matters, and they're going to tell you, and you reflect their stories, and the journalists that you have come from those communities. Like, the consistently better coverage from COVID that I'm finding in the research for my book is coming from racialized journalists. Like, overall that is across the board doesn't matter where you are in Canada doesn't matter the outlet the the journalism coming from racialized journalists is 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 consistently better than from white journalists and I don't know if there's like an anxiety among my fellow white journalists that maybe we're not actually fucking that great or um or you know I, I don't know if you saw but um David Mastracci at um at Passage. oh my god I was just about to mention this yes. <laughs> yeah go go for it well, like he's, he's starting to he's starting to gather these lists of who's related to who within within Canadian media, and um, and I'll let you tell the story of the of the reaction to this list. But you know the 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 the, the most recent list he has is like a hundred and thirty names or something, and it's like, wow, that guy's that guy's son. Like fuck, like I Gwyn Dyer's son is Evan Dyer. Like that is going to fucking change how I see Evan Dyer. I mean, that's a very specific uh, example because Gwyn Dyer, um, who's a columnist and has been a columnist for years and years and years, uh, was like the first person I ever met as a columnist. And I was like, holy shit, this is actually kind of a cool job. Um, but it's that's the construction of of white supremacy within Canada is these is these relationships. And, you know, when you can't see that that there are these relationships that exist, it just doesn't make any sense. When you can't see that management is going to conspire with some scabby piece of shit to to fire a young racialized journalist, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. And um, and so these you know all of these like little signposts and how this is constructed within Canadian within Canadian media is really really important, and it helps to make us understand why that that gap is growing between what what people experience on the ground and what they're experiencing or seeing reported to them by by their their local news yeah so uh just to let you all know what the uh reactions to this article that uh, <laughs> was published in <laughs> passage were oh my goodness it was so again fascinating and revealing about how little these <laughs> folks know yeah. about this thing that they're supposed to be able to report on called white supremacy so, you know, uh, he 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 reports on these familiar relationships. Not everybody on the list is white, but quite, you know, it's it's quite white, the list. Um, and uh, these folks on Twitter are go wild. They're like, why didn't you contact me for comment? <laughs> I was not hired because of my parents. I am talented. I am talented. And then there there becomes this kind of uh, crosstalk where people who are on the list are tweeting at other people on the list being like, hey, 
I've only ever read you because I thought that you were talented, not because of who your family relationships are. And they're like, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, because I do work really hard. <laughs> and it's just like, how could you people think that that is the only thing that matters here? And I mean, the this, the the insistence that Mr. Uh, um, Assi, is that how you pronounce it? Mistracci? Mistracci? Do you know? I, this this Italian, I mean, David's a friend of mine and he's my editor. And this Italian has to admit, I think it's Mastracchi. I don't know. <laughs> sorry, David. I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're going to call you David. <laughs> so uh, insisting that David should have uh, allowed them to comment on the article, which is literally the gathering of data. It's a list. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it's about like, this list they're just like you're saying something bad about us like their instinct is that he is making a bad comment about them and that they should have been able to refute the bad comment he doesn't make any comment he just puts the list together why do they feel so bad about it why do they feel like it's something they need to defend because there is something insidious there Somewhere yeah. deep down, they know, you know, that's why they respond that way. But they're not getting it quite right. Like, no one's saying necessarily that everyone on the list <laughs> is untalented. Uh, Kay's huge exception to that, that comment <laughs> I just made. <laughs> okay. But no one's saying that everyone on the list is untalented or that they didn't work hard or anything like that. No one's saying that you had some sort of relationship or some sort of discussion with your parents uh, or family relation that exists in journalism and they had a discussion with someone else or anything like that. It's not necessarily uh, the college scandal in the United States, although it could be for some of them. It could <laughs> yeah. be. It could be the case that for some of these people, and they're just fully unaware that their parents had a conversation with someone else. Perhaps. Look, the way that white supremacy works is not always going to result in the storming of the Capitol in a Camp Auschwitz T-shirt. OK, it's not always going to work out that way. Another way that white supremacy manifests is that, hey, white folks have controlled journalism forever in Canada and we know that the job market, the way that people get their jobs most often is through connections, through knowing someone, through knowing that someone else is related to somebody else, through knowing that someone else has a contact with someone else that they can just ask, you know, when they're going through the resumes, hey, you know that Jonathan Kay, do you know anything about him? Uh, his resume was like, eh, but I'm willing to take a chance. Oh, he's related to Barb Kay. He's totally, he could write, all right, we'll bring him in. Like those conversations happen. I've seen them happen. I know mm -hmm, they happen. Mm -hmm. Many of you have seen them happen and know they happen. So this response is just so bizarre because either they're being intellectually dishonest or they're responding in that way because they know that something is wrong there. Because otherwise it's just a fucking list. Why are you ashamed that your family members... <laughs> are also journalists. Shouldn't you be telling us that? Shouldn't you be like, hey, this runs in the family. This is great. You know, mm -hmm. um, the the problem is not that there are family relations in, in journalism. It's that those spots get taken and other people um, uh, don't have the same sorts of relationships 
to be able to get spots in journalism uh, uh, that all of these folks with these familial relationships do. That's why there are so many familial relationships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that's also a really good read. Uh, I encourage you folks to take a uh, take a look at the list. The whole controversy um, resulted in David updating the list because people <laughs> found out about it and were like, hey, you missed some folks. And so the list is now longer <laughs> than it was when it was started. Um and it fully starts by saying this list is not intended to be a reflection on the competence of any of the journalists mentioned. Which so many ignored. It doesn't say that. I threw that out myself. <laughs> well, he, he does like he does make it pretty clear that this isn't a comment on their journalism. Um, and I, I just looked at his name again. It's Mestracci. Um, I couldn't remember if there was an H or was two C's. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it was interesting, too, because a lot of people responded like, oh, it's the same thing for, for, for doctors. And it's the same thing for lawyers. Right. And I'm thinking of my parents who are always talking about how, like, the fucking shittiest um, uh, members of the school board were always hi- hiring their shittiest children <laughs> within the school board. So, like, yeah, it is, this happens everywhere. It's like correct. Yeah, it's like it's almost as though we live in a white supremacist society. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly why it exists. <laughs> yes. No kidding. And who can afford to become a doctor or a lawyer right now? Oh, the children of doctors and lawyers. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing how we've like managed to entrench white supremacy through other kind of economic measures within our society? Like, God, think a little bit fucking harder. Think a little bit harder. <laughs> I mean, if only we had media that could discuss something like this so that more of us could understand it. Oh, I, you know, like I, I, I am I try to pay attention to who's married to who within the Canadian media landscape, because I think it's interesting. Right. Especially if they re- reference their spouse on the air, as some do. Um, just, you know, oh, yeah, that's totally cool. Wow. You guys both are hosting shows. That's really that cool. Right. I think I mean, in a way, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, but, but exactly like, these are the kinds of things that, that media is too afraid to touch. And like, if, if, if our, if our, if our media continues to be so afraid to, 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 um, to tackle any of these issues that are in the public interest that help to explain can like, okay, here's an example. I'm reading a book right now that's called a question of separatism that was written by Jane Jacobs. And she did the Massey lecture in 1979 on the question of Quebec sovereignty. And, uh, she was never asked after this Massey lecture to explain this. She was the Globe and Mail's obituary of Jane Jacobs, like happened to just omit the fact that she wrote this book in their list of books that she wrote. And and I'm reading it and it's like she's not really pro sovereignty in Quebec. She's like just commenting on how Canada is a fucking pathetic country that doesn't process any of its natural materials and instead just ships it around the world and begs other countries to come and set up branch plants in this country. And that's our economy. And it's pathetic. It's a get rich quick scheme economy, which I was like, oh, that's a great way to put it. And even talking at the level that she was talking at, questioning, you know, fundamental questions about Canada, but not even to say, therefore, Canada shouldn't exist. That got shut out by someone like Jane Jacobs. Jane fucking Jacobs. Why, Sandy, are we so unable to ask these questions and have these conversations? I mean, we are. That's why we have this podcast. (laughs) 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 We're just not part of the we, unfortunately. But it's, it's like... 
uh, yeah, it's it is it's so incredibly frustrating. It's like the places where these these conversations should be happening, the discussions should be taking place is like in the public square because there are public decisions that could be made to change some of these things if we fully understood how white supremacy operates uh, in an, in our institutions like our media institutions. But, you know, I don't know. Perhaps it's like the profit motive behind media <laughs> that is part of preventing it. People not want to wanting to relinquish their power. Um, and so not wanting that, that, um, uh, that institution and the white supremacist ways in which it operates to change, right? Like there's a reason why it's so hard to change these things. It's because the people who have the, the power are benefiting from this setup where we never ask questions about how people are getting their jobs and why other people aren't getting certain jobs. Mm-hmm. 